Welcome to the HR Happy Hour Show with Steve Bowes and Trish McFarland. Trish, what is the best kind of pie? Oh, I like this question. Hi, Steve. Good morning. I, I'm going to, I feel like I always give really random answers to these questions, which maybe I guess is a good thing. Um, my favorite pie is actually called vinegar pie. So if have you heard of vinegar pie. I think so, because I think you and I maybe have had this conversation once before, but go ahead. Why don't you explain it to the 98% of the audience who probably don't know what that is? Well, it, and now that I'm saying it, it might actually be relevant, unfortunately, to some of us. So, I, you know, it may go back beyond this, but I know that during the Great Depression, you know, it was difficult to get fruit or, you know, definitely some of the ingredients that women um, would typically make pies from. And so they started using vinegar as a way to sort of add flavor. If you think of it, it has almost like, depending on what you mix it with, you might have a little lemon juice or something like that. And so it's, it's a pie that originated back then. It's sort of a custard pie that's made with vinegar and it actually is very sweet. So if you've not had vinegar pie and you're a pie person, um, just Google that and it's really, really good, but it doesn't take any, fruit. So hopefully we won't, uh, with our social distancing, we won't get to the point where we can't get fruit at the grocery store. But if it happens, yeah, that'd be awful. you heard it here. The, the goat pie should be vinegar pie. Right. What's yours? I, you know, I probably pumpkin. I, I'm a traditionalist Ooh. around the holidays. I love pumpkin pie. I'm not as big as a fruit pie guy, but the one type of fruit pie I had that I did like once in a while, and it's a little bit out there, is grape pie. Have you ever had that, Trish? Grape pie? Ooh, That's I have bit... I love grapes. I would probably yeah. I used to go pie. to this grape festival every year, and that was the one time a year I would have a grape pie. It's pretty good, actually. But uh, yeah, I'm a pumpkin guy, I think. Sweet Can I tell you something too. about pie, too? Because I think a lot of people don't make pie because they get, you know, soggy crust. And that's obviously not what you want. Um, I actually make really good pie. I do. I'm I'm very good at crust. And so maybe we'll put that in the show notes. I have kind of a secret a secret crust tip. Link to the crust recipe. Okay. I will. Yeah. You use Crisco oil instead of butter. It makes a whole big difference anyway. And it's way easier. But my my other tip is that just make the pie filling, whatever pie filling you like make your crust separate and use cookie cutters and cut it out like that and do like a deconstructed pie. That way the filling never makes the crust mm. soggy. You just I put like that. the little cookie pie piece in the filling and then whatever, you know, whip topping you like. So it works really well with pumpkin, which is why I thought of it. At, at holidays, I usually make deconstructed mm. pumpkin pie. All right. Well, uh, that's it for today's episode of Baking Daily. Uh, thanks for listening. I know. Uh, I'm sure our guest is like waiting in the wings. She's wondering what the hell is going on on the show. We need to know what her favorite pie is, right? We'll have to ask her. But first, Trish, we must thank our show sponsor before we get on with today's uh, show. We will, yes. Today's episode of the HR Happy Hour is made possible by WorkHuman. Their solutions replace isolation with recognition, connection, and celebration which right now is something we're all craving more than ever. With WorkHuman, you can uh, keep morale high by celebrating new babies and birthdays and much needed well wishes and all your special occasions with life events. You can give and receive continuous peer feedback, have regular check-ins between managers and direct reports, and set goals to stay aligned with conversations. Now you can try these free through March 2021 by visiting welcome.workhuman.com. 
to learn more. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, to our friends at Work Human. Our guest today, Trish, is Martha Bird. Martha Bird is a business anthropologist. She works at ADP's Roseland Innovation Lab. Since receiving her PhD in anthropology, Martha has worked with global brands to create meaningful services, experiences, and products by both questioning and contextualizing the social and cultural dynamics of technology. Today, she supports innovation in global product development to ensure future generations of ADP's HCM technologies are informed by the wisdom of human cultures and the everyday encounters out of which new practices take shape, evolve, and transform the way we work. Martha, welcome to the HR Happy Hour Show. How are you today? I'm very well, and thank you for for having me. All right. Martha, I guess we must ask, since we spent the first part of the show talking about it, do you have a pie preference? I, I do. Um, it's strawberry rhubarb, but oh, um, there's a couple caveats that the strawberry, uh, the rhubarb has to be, you know, actual uh, fresh uh, rhubarb. Yeah, proper rhubarb. Um, and yes. I'm, 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 I, I applaud Trish for her um, Crisco um, comment because um, my mother was one of the best crust makers ever, and she was doing crust when actually Crisco came in a um, in a solid form, you know, like a, a, a mm-hmm. like a Greek. And yeah, to me, the, to me, the the strawberry rhubarb is a thinly veiled excuse to have exceptional crust. Nice. And oh, I think people I do it. go astray when they're when they're buying um, the the, the store bought crust. There's nothing like a, a good. And I don't know, Trish, if you've discovered this in your own um, crust making um, endeavors, but people tend to overwork the crust, yes. um, meaning that it sort of yeah. it, it loses its flakiness. So the less that you work with it, the the uh, more flaky it tends to be. Love That's it. a great tip. So, Steve, I do think we need probably show notes on pie crust oh, yeah. tips because it's also another one. And I'll tell you what, you said strawberry rhubarb. My grandmother grew rhubarb always so that she could put that in her strawberry pies. So um, you're right. Fresh absolutely makes a difference. I don't know, though, Martha, do you think I don't know that people really buy it at the grocery store often because I don't know that we're sort of raised knowing what to do with it. Well, it's yeah. funny. I'm from New Hampshire, so it's sort of it, it's like the state, um, you know, state vegetable in a sense. So uh, mm. it's sold in the in the stores there pretty, um, you know, pretty frequently. Do we want to keep going with this, Trish, or or you know, get into cakes? <laughs> I mean, or yeah. should we go get into our our real topic today? Yeah, I don't we'll save that on. for our other podcast. Okay. Eyes or us. Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, Martha, <laughs> thank you for sharing. And I love the strawberry rhubarb. Uh, it, it, it's an underrated pie. So Martha, the first thing I wanted just to ask you, I know we read your bio a little bit. We talked a little bit about what you do there, but I'd love uh, to help you to help us uh, understand a little bit more about, because um, you have the coolest title of, of a guest we've had on the show in a while, a business anthropologist. That's super cool. And I I'd love for you maybe to just maybe expand on that a little bit, what you do, what is a business anthropologist, and, and what are some of the things that you do in that role? Sure. Um, you know, I do find that people find it um, a, a really interesting title. And I have to say that I'm, uh, I'm very fortunate to work for a company um, who ha- has that title for me, simply because I know, you know, a lot of uh, cultural anthropologists, people trained in the academic study of um, anthropology, who work um, in you know large um, global organizations, and they're usually not called uh, a business anthropologist. So I feel lucky that that can be called out as an actual mm-hmm. um, title. 
Um, a business anthropologist is, is, in my view, a person who studied, um, you know, cultural anthropology, who has a real sense of the history of, of uh, the theory of anthropology, but how it's applied in business settings um, is, is, I think, really even more interesting, which is, you know, anthropologists are trained to uh, look at the overlooked, to listen for the unsaid, to pay attention to the way um, norms are reinforced, mm -hmm. uh, to look at how people use tools, uh, what, what's considered, you know, an insider versus an outsider. And so you can imagine that when you're, when you're actually bu building, at least in, in our case, um, digital um, technologies, it's really important to understand um, what people are really um, doing with the things that, that we're um, building. But even more than that is to really understand, first and foremost, the needs that they have and then build towards those. So uh, I spend a lot of time deeply hanging out uh, with people in, in their daily um, routines to try to identify within those routines that they often can't articulate because they're so um, taken for granted how we might look at those and create uh, solutions that will, you know, help further the, their, their work. So that's one of the things mm -hmm. we do. I, I it, you know, it's taken me, it's taken me all over the world, which is great. Um, I spent a considerable amount of time working in Russia. I've worked um, through um, Central and um, uh, Central and uh, Central Europe and in various other um, locales across the globe. So it's, it's, a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful field to be in and I'm, I feel super privileged to be doing it. You know, Martha, I, th I think you're right. I think that organizations that may even have people with that type of background don't necessarily call it out in that way. It's interesting to me, I gosh, so many things you said, I was making notes as you were talking, um, you know, just talking about the tools that people use and how norms are enforced. Um, and whether or not people are insiders or outsiders, are you finding that, you know, you mentioned you were doing this all over the globe, basically, is it quite different in different business environments, um, even within the same organization across the globe? Or were you, were you doing studies like that is would be my first question. And the second question is, um, are these always, or do they, do they, nearly always tend to be physical observations that you're making, or do you use other methods to sort of gather all of this data and information? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'll, um, if I forget to, to answer one of those, just loop me back and remind me, but I think, um, you know, for me, it's, it's about, you know, marrying the, the quantitative data that, that large companies um, get to um, leverage with the, the qualitative. So, with quantitative, we can we can identify um, behavioral um, where kind of information. So where is someone dropping from a site? Where are they um, not? Uh, where where is the product not being sustained? And so the big data can help us with that. Uh, the the qualitative data, which is the type of data that I typically bring, asks why why are people doing that? So you know you really have to have the two together in order for it to to produce an insight that I think is, um, you know, worthwhile. So I do a lot of the, you know, quantitative and qualitative um, matching, working really directly with uh, data, the data analytics teams that I've, um, you know, been involved with over the course of the last 20 some odd years. In terms of like organizational culture differences, um, particularly for like global um, organizations, 
In the past, I've, I've focused much more on consumer side um, research, but I think it's it's easily applicable. Um, uh, you know, there's parallels that are, are I think pretty obvious. So, you know, you can be in the U.S. Uh, and and there's a, a a consumer market there. I worked in e-commerce, so uh, there was a lot of assumptions about how people buy, what they buy, uh, you know, what what they may potentially be buying in the future. And at that time, which was probably 15 years ago, I was working um, for um, eBay International Markets, uh, their emerging markets um, area, with and there was a great deal of interest in Russia. So I spent, you know, I spent a, a lot of time there in Moscow, uh, and and really trying to understand how people uh, shopped online. And there were a lot of assumptions coming out of San Jose at that time that, you know, the issue would be around being able to you know, figure out how to pay people because cash was king at that time in um, in in Russia. But really what it turned out, or, and that maybe we needed to build a site for, for just for Russians, not sort of the dot-com experience. Um, so I spent a lot of time uh, with online shoppers, and it was pretty evident pretty quickly that the issue was not um, so much around, you know, navigating a U.S.-based site uh, because people figure out how to navigate complexity in, in places like um, Russia, but it was really more about a distrust of the um, customs uh, and postal service and all of the uh, bureaucracy that goes on there. So, you know, I think what happens is we we come in with a lot of assumptions uh, about you know about other places, and until someone's there um, actually asking the questions. Uh, we 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 can really go down a rabbit hole that's not particularly um, useful um, in the long run. So some of it's about mitigating the risk of making investment in those um, in in those ideas when really they're not the ideas that um, will be sustainable. And and sometimes it's really about asking different questions uh, instead of asking the questions that we we think we need to ask. We learn there are other questions we should be asking. In terms of organizational culture, I actually think of a recent article um, that I was reading about um, Japan and the fact that uh, in, in, you know, not to be reductionist, but the fact that in Japan, uh, in Japan you know, there is a, there's, there's been a lot of tradition around, um, you know, uh, mindfulness of other people. So, you know, wearing a mask when you're, you're un unwell, uh, you know, bowing instead of, um, you know, handshaking and all of those um, things that that we can think about. But one of the traditions that has been, um, you know, it will be more problematic is a um, propensity in businesses to have uh, stamped approval, meaning an actual physical stamp um, mm -hmm. as a way of escalating approvals. And so that's a deep cultural, there's a deep cultural history to that. Uh, and that is something that our current situation obviously is putting to the test and uh, and I think will be, you know, we'll have to adapt to the, the current historical moment. So there's a lot of those examples. It's, it's just always a fascinating um, space to work in when you get to look um, across cultures and, and understand that the perspectives that we may have here in the U.S. are, are not those um, shared by um, others around the world. Thank you for that. You know, it's it's interesting and you, you kind of segue nicely into my next question, which was going to be around, you know, understanding maybe that in many ways people globally are not that different, 
right? That sometimes it is sort of that bureaucracy mm-hmm. you talked about or, or process that might, you know, cultural processes that might be in place that's, that's the true difference. Um, how are you seeing the workplace change, especially even in these last couple of months, right? With social distancing mm-hmm. where people are using tools. I know that part of, you know, um, business anthropology is studying the tools that people use. So, you know, we mm-hmm. have people using maybe similar tools across the globe now in order to communicate or work effectively. Um, What are you starting to see? I know it's pretty early on, right, with this social distancing, but what are you starting to see at ADP with your customers in terms of, you know, are there any early impacts on things like productivity or the way that processes are being handled? Are you starting to get a glimpse into that or is it still a little too early? Well, I I think, I think, Definitely, um, I'm getting a glimpse from the work from my own team. Um, so, you know, we're all um, remote and working from home. I think, I think it's, not an, uh, it's not an overstatement to say that there's going to be a renaissance in um, HR, HCM, and the tools, the technologies, because this is a situation that we're in now that is, it's sort of the genies out of the bottle, and I don't think um, it's mm-hmm. going to be um, put back right away uh and so you know how we work is 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 obviously changed um and i think part of like thinking um you know going going forward is really about what are the things that we've done just out of convention uh versus the things that that we need to do from from a point standpoint of necessity right so to me that sort of suggests uh, the potential for you know, even more streamlining of some of our um, systems. I'm not, not uh, ADP's been working on this for some time now, but I mean, just generally in the industry. And then also trying to understand what is the difference between, you know, the quantity of the work you do over the quality of the work you do. So when we're all in office spaces, there's a sort of notion of, of, of a quantity. I'm in the office from X to X. I've done, uh, you know, I've, I've had this amount of meetings. I've you know, it's it's a measurable kind of, um, you know, metric. And I think now, and I see this on my team, is that the people who, uh, you know, it's th- this, uh, this uh, moment has given an opportunity to see who are the people that are really producing the quality of work that needs to happen. And, and those people are standing out. So they might have been 100% before, and now they're like 125%. Um, but you know, alternatively, you can see where where others are 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 less able to rise to the occasion. So I think that's a very interesting um, that's a very interesting observation around organizations. And then, you know, in terms of the you know in terms of this renaissance about work that I I referenced, it's also about the space of work, right? It's about how these spaces of of offices will be changed. Um, really you know, in a way that we can't anticipate now, but I can almost imagine is going to have a huge impact on, um, you know, organizational uh, physical footprints and, you know, the, the spatial arrangement of, of the places we go back to if we do indeed go back to them. Martha, yeah, that's a really interesting um, comment. And it just recalls something I read either yesterday or maybe even this morning. Uh, Days are blending one to the next a little bit. Um, I I must admit Mm -hmm. that uh, the um, I was reading about this prototype um, uh, office, new office space design that was being um, uh, talked about. And 
incorporating elements like certainly just spacing and things like that and having fewer workstations in, in close proximity, et cetera. But this one even had things like like underneath your your desk or your chair area, the carpet itself would have a a, a contrasting color circle built into it or woven mm -hmm. into it. And it, it, it wasn't like, say, in the grocery store where there's an explicit sign that says, please stand here, right? Be this much uh, mm -hmm. apart from the person in front of you. But it was that subtle signal, like, don't come inside the circle, right? If you're going to come visit me at my desk, right? And again, this is just a prototype I saw, but it speaks to what you're talking about, Martha, that, that you know, there are going to be some uh, longer lasting changes in how we work, where we work, and, and how we think about work. And um it's maybe too early to tell uh, which ones are going to be longer lasting, of course, but uh, there's no doubt that there's going to be changes. And, and I guess getting out in front of that is going to be important for organizations to um, to just respond to changes and to support their employees, I'd imagine, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's funny because, you know, I think uh, we always imagine the future from the present. So, you know, there really isn't a future. It's just an imagined um you know, a historical moment ahead of us. We, we, we're, we're firmly in the present and, you know, we take from the past. And I think what happens is, is when we're thinking about things like you've just referenced, the sort of, you know, zone that one might sit in and how is that going to play out, we often um, hold on to, you know, where we are now. And so we're thinking, oh, that's going to be weird because I'm going to sit in the middle of this sort of center and then people are going to be like on the periphery and what does that mean? Well, what, what happens is, is that over the course of time, technologies, and then in a sense, that is the technology that you, you're, you're talking about, the cultural behavior and the technology are co-informed. Often what happens is you have a techno technology change, for instance, a layout of a, of a cubicle or your office area, and that will eventually you know, foster new ways of, of thinking about categories that we're familiar with. So I think about as a parallel, um, you know, the incandescent light bulb. Um, when that was uh, invented and became, you know, accessible to, you know, a mass market, uh, you know, ideas about privacy changed. Now, those are cultural things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, privacy is a cultural notion. But if you can actually flip a switch and have what is dark illuminated, um, that has a whole, um, you know, a whole line of impacts on on the category um, of privacy. So I think it's the same with space, and I think it's the same with the arrangement of space. And very interestingly, some of the larger, um, you know, manufacturers of, of uh, office equipment, well, office furniture and office design, you know, have been have been pretty quick to hire at least one or two anthropologists to to look at the cultural implications of space. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's going to be a really interesting uh, area of of work and workplaces to that we'll have to think about and, and focus on in the next uh, coming months. Martha, I, I wanted to ask just a just slightly different question because it's interesting to me too. I'm um, around the technology itself, and you know, Trish and I both have worked in products and technology companies, and we've been users of technology, et cetera, and. In my experience with uh, HR, HCM technologies often was like we would try to figure out what to create or what to design and how to build our, our tools and technologies based on, I don't know, very specific sets of um, requirements or, you know, trying to understand mm -hmm. what, what people needed to do to, to accomplish a very discrete task. Like I need to enter my 
the, t the hours I worked today, right? So how do we support right. that? It sounds like to me that part of what you do, maybe a lot of what you do is to think a little bit, maybe one layer above that, right? And, and abstract more into what are people really doing? How are they going about it? How are they accomplishing it, right? And I'm, I'm just wondering mm -hmm. like how that kind of richer understanding of what people's goals and aspirations are <laughs> informs what you do and how you advise your teams on, on what you guys should be building. Yeah, no, I love that question. Thanks for asking it because I think what it does is it 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 brings us to what I consider to be one of the sort of founding values of an anthropological mindset, which is looking at things from a system perspective, right? Not from these discrete um, instances. And I think what's happened when when it's been about these discrete in instances, we've we've as an industry built tools that are are kind of getting uh, you know clipped onto each other. So it's not it's not an end-to-end -end smooth experience. It becomes, you know, a, a, a confluence of workflows and sometimes they just don't really flow that well. So uh, one of the things that I think is is interesting um, to think about is, you know, if you're if you if you're a hammer manufacturer um, and you build a, a hammer in a certain way, a certain kind of head, the handles a certain way. That's all well and good, but really the person that you're selling that hammer to really wants to build a fence. Mm. It's the fence building that is the end goal. It's not the hammer. I think what happens is, and often one, and I'm sure you guys have seen this too, is that we get a bit um, fixated on the tools that we build. Um, but it's actually not the tools that we build that are the, as important as it is understanding the job to be done. Yeah. And I think more and more it's really going to be about the jobs to be done and, and disintermediating some of that extra stuff that isn't required and, and really looking at things from an end to end, how all these systems actually um, inform um, the other and what is the end goal, right? What is the end goal and, and building for the end goal, not for the tool itself. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that, Martha, because I think that that's one one thing that maybe prior to sort of all of these changes in the last few months, we we as as people tend to get a little bit lost in you know just sort of iterating on on a tool versus really thinking about what we are trying to accomplish with that tool. So, I'm yeah. wondering, you know, you lead a team yourself, um, or even with this question wider, and you know applying to all of ADP. Um, for me, although it's scary having times like this, it's also maybe presenting a lot of opportunities to make an impact, which sort of alludes to what you were talking about. Um, what are you doing or how would you advise other leaders who may not know how to move forward with their own teams? How are you handling um, sort of leading a team into making an impact right now when times are pretty uncertain, maybe versus, you know, not that it's ever completely certain, but, you know, than even mm. six months ago when we thought we sort of knew, you know, what the path was. Um, how have you changed your approach maybe with your team or what are some ways you're having some successes um, in times of uncertainty well, with making an impact? Yeah, um, I, I should clarify that I'm actually a, a collaborator within a, a larger team. So I'm, I'm not actually leading that team, but I think the way our team is set up is that we're all sort of our own leaders, um, which I think is 
a great way of doing things. We could talk about that at great length and perhaps maybe mm-hmm. we can in the future. Um, but I think, I think there's a couple things. I think there's some really basic, just human things like uh, building trust and, and having empathy. Uh, and I think that can go a very long way. Like a good leader can always lead when things are good. I'm not saying they do it well, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't push on, um, on change or adapt, you know, adaptation. But I think when things are difficult, like they are now, this is what separates leaders out. Uh, and it also separates us companies. So, you know, trust is huge. As, as, as you guys well know, you know, you need to have employees who trust their employer. Uh, if employees are trusting their employer, the customers are more likely to trust the company um, that they're uh, working with. So I think that there's um, this idea of trust and how you build trust uh, by doing what you say you're going to do, whether that is in person or remote. I think that's really key. And then having empathy. So, you know, for instance, on, on the team I'm in, you know, there's many people on that team who are, you know, on their own now um, throughout this. Uh, and it's important to actually connect with them and see how things are going. For those of us who are not uh, by ourselves, it's a different matter. And sometimes it's just about let's get a break because the kids are coming in, the dog needs to be washed, <laughs> I've got to go get groceries. But I think there's that sort of like, you know, just human empathy, I think is, is really important. Um, and I think those are things that can go a real, uh, you know, can go a, a very long way. I also think that it's, it's interesting to me as I'm observing, um, you know, different teams using the tools that are now available to, uh, for, you know, to us to get our work done, you know, the collaboration tools, which is huge. I'm, you know, in a development team. And so there's a lot of back and forth. Um, I'm seeing that, you know, the, a person on the team who might not have otherwise spoken up in an in-person situation, but who has plenty of important things to offer is more inclined to do it um, in this remote way that we're, we're using. And so I think there's, I think there's those, those opportunities. And then of course, you know, really thinking about your own position within this new tool usage, when you're building tools, you are basically building tools for other human beings. And so what are you experiencing and sort of, being more mindful about the things that are challenging to you when you're actually getting ready to, uh, you know, scope a new project, create a roadmap, write code, uh, market something. I just think really being self-reflective about your own um, your own needs, and then having that empathy in order to create um, tools that are more um, human-centered. Martha, one comment you made just struck a chord with me when you mentioned that you might have a, a member of the team who might be less inclined to speak up, say, in a big in-person meeting in front of 20, 20 odd people, right? But much more open and, and, and uh, active in collaborating and communicating in some of these other um, technical environments. And um, I was thinking back years and years ago, uh, Trisha, and I apologize, I think I may have told this story once before, but I'm going to tell it again real quick. When I was teaching back at uh, RIT back in the day, and Mm -hmm. we had um, quite a bit of uh, deaf or hard of hearing students in in that school. Mm -hmm. And I had a couple in my classes as always, and we usually had interpreters. And anyway, one of the classes... Uh, we did some virtual collaboration kinds of stuff with some of the tools that were available then. And there were a couple of those students, the deaf or hard of hearing students who 
were often very unwilling to participate in class. And it, I think it was primarily because, you know, there's communication difficulties and they felt, you know, a little bit reticent. When we got into this virtual environment where everybody had an avatar and it was chat based essentially, and everybody was quote unquote the same, you know, they mm -hmm. don't like they were so productive and they were so collaborative and so innovative and creative. It was amazing. Like I, I noticed it within an hour, you know, of, of us doing it. And I, I never forgot that story. And I think it's uh, it's a telling one that we should also kind of remind ourselves as we're going through what we're going through now, right? Like in some ways, uh, working and collaborating has been made a little bit more difficult. But in other ways, for some people, it's certainly maybe gotten better, right? And, and maybe easier and more open and, and accessible to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent example. And, and you know, if I were to imagine um, how this could play out in other ways, um, I'm thinking about, you know, you know, this all brings up this idea around, you know, diversity in teams, which I am a big proponent of simply because I think you get the same people from the same sorts of backgrounds and the same sorts of, you know, uh, economic situations and the same sorts of regions come together, you're going to get the same sorts of ideas. So, you know, you think about this sort of opportunity for diversity that comes up. And, and one of those things I think about is, you know, people in rural areas who have been less able to participate in, you know, companies that are, you know, typically, um, you know, in, in knowledge work are typically located in, you know, more metropolitan spaces, you know, this, this sort of the, the distributed voice um, that some of the technologies we're now using, I think, um, really has some um, positive potential. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Martha. We did a show a couple of weeks ago with um, a gentleman from uh, Vanderbilt who works uh, the Frist Center for Autism. Um, I can't remember the full name of it. Mm -hmm. but remember, Trish, I remember the name of that. But, Frist Center. Yeah, the Frist Center for, and helps you know companies work with uh, folks on the autism spectrum. And I think that's another uh, something we talked about with him as well. And I think that's another really, really good example. Yeah, he, he was amazing. I think, too, the other thing um, that you've both kind of touched on is the fact that, you know, to me, leadership is more than a title. You know, a leader is someone who just steps up in different ways and at different times. And I feel like whether it's been in organizations I've talked to, whether it's been, you know, noticing on things like, you know, the local news channels, you know, the the people that actually do the weather and, the you know, give you your news or even in politics, I just feel like different people are coming to light, people that maybe we didn't see in a leadership role before, but in a time of crisis, they are the ones that really step up and have different ways of presenting themselves and their ideas. And so in that regard, uh, you know, if I were in a larger organization still, I think that's what I would really be looking to is, are we using the tools that we have, our HCM system and, you know, ways to recognize people? Are we really using it for those people who are maybe not named managers, but that are becoming the true leaders in the organization. So it's sort of an interesting time to see who's really starting to shine where maybe they weren't feeling like they could in the past. Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting um, observation. And it reminds me of something that I've been, you know, reflecting on the last um, several weeks, which is this idea of focal length, right? So, you know, we we basically exist in space. We have you know, uh, like actual up close focus on our, you know, maybe our the screens uh, on our phone or on our laptop, and then we have a background. So it kind of gives us this kind of um, this 
shape to occupy, this spatial shape. And it's interesting as as the way different people work becomes more more foregrounded, I mean, much more obviously in in terms of um, video conferencing and things like that, collaborative tool work, um, you actually get a, a, a much more sharp sense of who's doing what. Um, and so it's not like they can sort of blend into the background and, you know, everyone's sort of doing the same thing. So I think excellence, just as you're saying with this leadership um, foregrounding, I think it, 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 it's a metaphor that I think we can really, I'd like to think about a little bit more and unpack, but I think it's a very interesting kind of reawareness or new awareness, actually, of people who might have been blended into the um, background who are now coming to the fore. And I think that's, you know, I think that's great. Yeah, it's been hard to recognize that it, at least in my career, which was mostly in HR, I remember working at the children's hospital and, you know, there wasn't a way at the time to to adequately capture it. And I wonder if, you know, now it's 10 years later, maybe it's easier to do so. But we definitely were aware that there were people without titles that were certainly the the quote unquote leaders of different teams and departments. So, for example, we had a mm-hmm. pretty large, um, pretty large group of housekeepers and of course, they had a manager and a supervisor and all the things you'd expect. And they were very good leaders, you know, but there was one woman who had been there about 20 years and she, you just knew you had to get her on board, right? Because she was the true leader of the group. All 200 people looked mm-hmm. to her before, they, you know, before they reacted. And and she was the one who sort of set the, the social norms within that team. And so, yeah, it, it'd be interesting to see if you could start measuring those kinds of people, especially in, in a time where maybe more people are working remote and, um, and to Steve's example too, where you're feeling like maybe you're, maybe you're on more equal footing for, for a change, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, everyone's off balance, right? Even the leaders are off balance if they're not used to working from home. So, um, it can be, uh, or even if you are actually just thinking of Steve and I, you know, we're used to working from home. Um, but this time of year we would be on the road. So it's been even a change for us having to, you know, change and, and adapt the way we do things. Um, I, know, I, have to cook, I have to cook every day. That's just, uh. <laughs> well, you right. know, one of the things that, that, that organizational anthropologists, um, you know, tend to do is, is to really understand um, the flows of power within an organization, often very large um, siloed or uh, organizations, and who actually are the people that really are in the know. It doesn't yeah. necessarily always mean it's the C-suite. It could be appropriately, um, you know, the uh, professional assistants. They tend to, mm-hmm. you know, I tend to be um, thinking that's kind of uh, the important um, person to, to understand their perspective. And, you know, and it, you know understanding uh, an organization, sometimes it's about uh, seeing what the reception area is like. That is, you know, that is rich with um, meaning in terms of how a, a culture, an organization culture presents itself. So I think that's kind of, you're, you're hitting on things that I think are really um, in the um, wheelhouse of an- anthropology, which is to really see and to identify um, uh, the voices of people who may not have historically been heard um, as clearly as they hopefully will be um, going forward. Yeah, that's awesome, Martha. Martha, I got one last one for me, uh, just, and it's this. 
unfortunately, probably, especially smaller organizations, maybe don't have someone like you, right? That an anthropologist, a PhD anthropologist in training and, and someone who can really assess and study and, and help the organization understand their market and their customers and, and, and the relationships between them and their technologies, et cetera. Let's say you, you can't really have a you, but what could advice might you give uh, say an organization or even an HR organization that might want to just think about the world a little bit more like an anthropologist. Is there one or two things you would you would recommend to say this is maybe maybe ask these types of questions or observe these types of things? Yeah, uh, I'm, I would love to put in a plug for a fellow anthropologist um, who has writ written a book quite recently um, that I think uh, is is super accessible to, to all. Um, his name is Jay Hasbrook. Um, he uh, wrote a book called um, Ethnographic Thinking. Oh, cool. uh, from method to mindset, and it basically talks about not how to be an anthropologist because you know that takes some other stuff, but how to think <laughs> like an anthropologist. And I think it covers um, precisely what you've raised. And I, and I personally find it um, a great uh, reminder. And I think uh, those who have uh, suggested it to, you know, have taken a lot from it. It, it, it there's there's a lot of practical um, tips and tricks, you know, around. How, how to create a, uh, a culture of curiosity, um, you know, to suspend um, judgment, uh, to ask questions differently, uh, all the things that one would um, uh, uh, expect of an anthropologist, but he, he puts it in very lay terms, and I think it's, it's super um, useful. Uh, Martha, I love that. Thank you for the recommendation. I now have a book uh, to read, uh, which I needed because yep. uh, I have been trying to read more, but <laughs> as, like everyone else is, I'm running out. So uh, awesome. I appreciate that. Great. We'll definitely Thank include you. that in the show as well. And and then the other um, the other channel that I think is, um, you know, super helpful for people just wanting to maybe even go a little deeper into some of the topics that uh, anthropologists would be um, considering in these um business settings is the ethnographic praxis in industry organization but it's sim more simply put epic in capital e-p-i-c organization um you could just um find that uh, find that online and it's there's a lot of resources there that are super helpful and and go to the sorts of topics that we've raised here awesome martha thank you so much I think, too, just to also mention ADP's Spark blog, right, where they can find um, right. information that you've shared as well. Um, I know you had a, a recent article on the social presence of physical distance. So that's one um, to check out. And, and obviously, you've you know written quite a few others there as well. So um, I think if someone's right. looking for some reading and resources, that's always a great place to uh, head for that. Great stuff. This has been super fun conversation, Martha. I, I know we hit on a number of different topics. Appreciate you rolling with us, but I found it really, really fascinating. I love, um, I'm jealous of, of the work you get to do to some extent. I'm not going to lie, but uh, I mm -hmm. want to thank you for sharing a lot of it with us today. Well, I appreciate the um, the platform, guys. It's, it's really, um, you know, my reason for working is, is to be able to spread um, sort of the, the word around um, including different perspectives and all that we do. And I think um, uh, your questions help to sort of surface some of that. So thank you so much for that. All right. Well, great. Great stuff. Martha Bird from ADP, thank you so much for joining us. Trish, great stuff. Loved it. I, I love these mm -hmm. kind of shows. So thank you. I do too. I have to tell you, I think you're right. I would I would love to, to do nothing but this kind of work because <laughs> um, I was a sociology major, but I took a lot of anthropology classes. So I definitely have always enjoyed sort of thinking about 
um, why groups of people behave the way they do and, and yeah. how that all ties into cultural and, and societal norms. So, um, yeah, it, it just, you know, from a business perspective to tie that with the technology, I think that's what's interesting. And yeah. hopefully the listeners will, will feel that way as well. Oh, great stuff. We'll, we'll try to get all the things we mentioned, all the links in the show notes, including the pie recipes and everything else. So um, <laughs> I, I, I do want to one more time thank our sponsor, Trish. This podcast was made possible by WorkHuman. Their solutions replace isolation with recognition, connection, and celebration. Try them free through March of 2021. Learn more at welcome.workhuman.com. And many thanks to them. Trish, great stuff. I think uh, we have a lot to think about and I got a book to order from Amazon so I can read this weekend and uh, looking forward to that. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Martha. It was wonderful having you on the show. All right. Thanks, All right. guys. For our guest, Martha Bird, for Trish McFarlane, my name is Steve Bose. Thank you so much for listening to the HR Happy Hour Show. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you next time and bye for now.